more empty chairs than usual. You should have seen our nine o'clock service, but that's okay. We, we spend a big chunk of our life working, right? In fact, if we break up um, time spent throughout our life, um, it averages out for a North American life, it averages out to be one-third work, one-third sleep. I currently have a toddler and a baby, so I wish I had a little more than that. And one-third doing whatever else we do in life, hobbies, um, family time, groceries, cook. So with a very significant part of our life being dedicated to work, we probably ask ourselves at some point, what is the meaning of work? And if you're a Christian, there should be a follow-up question to that that says, what does following Jesus have to do with my work? And these are the questions that I want us to wrestle with this morning. And the answers to those questions will depend on what story you attach to your work. Tim Keller, um, a well-known author and, and theologian and pastor, he says this, I love this quote, he says, work will make no sense to you unless you put it into some kind of a story. Work will make no sense to you unless you put it into some kind of a story. Maybe simplified, oversimplified, but the common story in North America is essentially consume, meet your desires, Try not to die along the way, right? But this story lacks hope. If, if gratification of our desires is really the purpose of work, well, then we just kind of, we move through the week disaffected and with a self-centered view and a shallow view of work. We work for the weekend, and that's, that's about it, right? Under that story. We have a job, and we kind of, you know, we do it for as long as we feel engaged with it, and then, you know, if that doesn't work out, well, whatever, you know, maybe we'll try something else, or whatever. We lack, we lack a greater story of work, a story that moves beyond just working for self-gratification. But I believe that the Bible offers us a much grander story, one that, that gives great meaning to work and hope. And so this morning, I want us to explore that story. And this isn't just for pastoral work or missionary work. This applies to all of our work. This story applies to you whether you're in the medical field, business, education, trades, the service industry, whether you're a student, whether you're a stay-at-home parent or a retired person. I believe that this story can and wants to transform the way that we go about our Monday to Friday life or Monday to Saturday. And the first thing we should probably acknowledge is that if as Christians we claim Jesus to be Lord over all of our life, then surely following Jesus has something to do with where we spend most of our waking hours, right? And so in order to see our work through the Bible, I want us to see it through four stages, through creation, how things were, the fall, how things are, redemption, how things could be, and restoration, how things will be. So let's start with creation. In page one of the Bible, if you're following along on your Bibles, you can open it up to Genesis 1, right at the top of the page. And just a footnote here, to give credit where credit is due, a large portion of uh, this sermon I gleaned on from other smarter people, right? And so I want to give credit where credit is due. And Tim Mackey from the Bible Project He's so insightful on this topic, and so I gleaned on a lot of his insights for this. 
So later, if you're wanting a much better and a way longer sermon on all of this, just go home and look up Tim Mackey, Labor of Love, and sit back for two hours. It's great. Okay, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was, what do your translations say? Formless and empty, formless and void maybe. Let's stop right there because formless and empty, it is, it is a good translation, a lot of thought went into there, but it doesn't quite do it justice. It doesn't capture the full picture of what that's trying to communicate. The original Hebrew says, now the earth was tohu vavohu. Try saying that, that's pretty fun, tohu vavohu. One commentator translates this as wilderness and wasteland. It's the same phrase that's used elsewhere in the Bible to describe the desert. What is the desert? It's, it's wilderness and wasteland, right? It's tohu vavohu. And this is important for us to grasp for the message today. So God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was a wild wasteland. He's got these raw materials that haven't been organized yet. They haven't been beautified yet. He's got tohu vavohu. And keep going in verse 3 onward. What does he do with this? He puts order in the world. He separates day and night, sky and water, land and water. God is bringing order out of chaos. Verse 10 says, And God saw that it was good. In Hebrew it says, God saw that it was tov. Do you hear the play on words there? You don't even really need to understand Hebrew to see that there's a play on words here. God brought tov out of tohu vavohu. It's supposed to kind of rhyme and make, be a play of words. He brings goodness to creation. And in this instance, that goodness looks like order. And then what does God do? Verse 11 onward, Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, fruit trees. Let there be lights in the sky, right? Sun, moon, stars. Let the water teem with living creatures and birds fly above the earth. Let the land produce living creatures. And again, God said it was good. More tov. What does God's tov look like here in this part? He's packing his creation full of life and potential and beauty, right? Then verse 26, God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may, so that they may be couch potatoes and lie around. What's your, no? No. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in, in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. At the pinnacle of creation, God creates humans. And right from the beginning, he says, humans are to rule over creation and subdue the earth. What's the word subdue mean? We might have a bit of a negative connotation with that, but it simply means to assert your will over something, not in a negative, exploitative kind of way. Remember, 
evil hasn't entered the story yet. It simply means to assert your will over it for what? So that it yields its potential. See, um, I grew up in apple orchard country in Mexico, and we had apple trees, and, and if we just let them go, um, they would give you some fruit. If you just let them be on their own, they would give you some fruit. But I remember going to the orchard when the workers were pruning and when they were thinning out the apples. And I was curious and I asked my dad, like, why do we do that? Like, why prune? Why thin them out? And my dad taught me that by pruning and thinning out, you actually cause the the apple trees to produce bigger fruit, more beautiful fruit, and ultimately more fruit. You have to subdue them in order to bring about the most amount of potential that they give, right? Green thumbs out there. I'm sure that's true for your gardens. I have not subdued my experimental garden in my backyard right now, and it is tohu vavohu. It's chaos, (laughs) okay? What's the point of trying to yield the most amount of potential? Well, somebody is going to benefit from it, right? Our apple orchard gave us the benefit of delicious apples, and my mom then subdued the apples into delicious apple pies. But it was a big orchard. It didn't only benefit us, it it benefited a lot of people. So let's connect the dots. God brings order, beauty, and potential into his creation to bring about benefit. Benefit for whom? For God? For us, for humans. Verse 29, then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant and every tree that has fruit. They will be yours for food. God's work benefits others. And then at the bottom of page one, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Lots of tov going on here. God's work is to bring tov out of tohu vavohu through order potential, beauty, and benefit. And then, and then we get the first mention of the word work in the Bible, and it's packed in there three times. The end of the chapter or beginning of chapter two, it said, says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from the work of creating that he had done. Who is the first worker in the Bible? God. And what kind of work does God do? What does his work accomplish? It brings goodness through order, beauty, potential, benefit for others. That's what God's work does. And so what roles do humans have in this? They are to be his co-workers who reflect his image. So it stands that our work is tied to the kind of work that God does. Humans participate in the work that God does. Um, Genesis 2 is the same story, but it's just told slightly differently. In Genesis 1, God is a worker and humans are co-workers. In Genesis 2, God is a gardener. Humans become co-gardeners. Chapter 2, 15 says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And God told the man, you are free to eat, remember this, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. 
So our 21st century minds is like, is this a magical tree? Is there something mysterious going on with this magic fruit? No, no, no. This is, this is an ancient genre of narrative that's trying to communicate a deep, real truth, right? So what, what does this represent? It represents something much, much bigger than just a fruit tree. Who has been the sole provider of good up until this point in the story? God. And he provides a lot of it, right? Everything he does is tov. It's all good. And in his goodness, God is offering humans free will. He gives them the freedom and dignity to choose. It's an opportunity for moral maturity. Humans need to make moral judgment. That's something we do a lot of in our workplaces, right? The question here is, will humans humble themselves and trust God's definition of what is good, or are they going to seize that opportunity to define it for themselves autonomously, apart from God? That is what this tree in the story represents. Okay, the good times only last for about two pages, and then we get to page three, the fall. In chapter three, we're introduced to an interesting creature, a serpent, and all that this story indicates is that this creature is a creature in rebellion to God, and the serpent's goal is to try and entice the humans to also rebel against God. 3 verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See how the serpent is twisting and misrepresenting what God actually said? Flip back one page, and what did God say? He says, wait a minute, here, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Go nuts, enjoy it all. This is for you. There's only one tree that represents something much, much bigger that they are not to eat from. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Come on, you will not certainly die, the serpent says. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes are going to be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent plants doubt in the human's minds, right? Maybe... Maybe God is holding out on you. What if there's more? What if he's actually keeping the best from you? What if you're just a caged tiger? Go ahead, open the cage. Be, be free. You don't really need, to t- need God to tell you what's good or bad. You could, you could be your own God. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. He was with her. Sometimes we, we blame Eve. Adam's right there. He's with her. What happens immediately after? Adam and Eve run away from each other because they saw that they were naked. Now, don't just think, oh my gosh, they just realized that they weren't wearing any clothes and now they suddenly do. No, no, no. Being naked in this story means trust. There was a deep trust between Adam and Eve. But now that humans have seized autonomy to decide what's good for themselves, well, maybe, maybe your definition of what's good is different than, than my definition of good. 
And so now I'm going to distance myself from you and I'm going to protect my interests because we have conflicting views of what's good and I want what's best for me and you want what's best for you and see where this is going? Adam and Eve, they also ended up hiding from God. So first it distorts human relationships. Then they hide from God. The relationship between God and humans gets distorted by sin. And as a result of sin, all areas of life, including work, gets distorted. Here's how it affects work. Um, Verse 17, God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. So the ground is still producing fruit to eat for them, right? There is still good results from work, but now there's thorns and thistles because of sin that's going to cause resistance to human work. That's applicable to the reality we live in too, right? Our dreams, our dreams and goals for work won't reach its maximum potential because sin acts like thorns and thistles, interrupting and frustrating and thwarting our goals for work. Sin fragments us personally. It fragments relationships. And it affects our moral judgments, which we said we make a lot of Monday to Friday, right? We make a lot of moral judgments. Now, add to my sin the sin of my coworkers, the sin of my boss, the sin that's out there, and you can quickly see how sin begins to affect all of work and all areas of, our, of life, right? So on the one hand, we have this good story of work in Genesis 1 and 2, and on the other, we have the story of Genesis 3 and how work is affected by sin. And the truth is, we live in a, in a time where we experience both, right? We do experience the Genesis 1 and 2 narrative of, of the goodness of work, Would you agree with that? Yeah. The satisfaction of of bringing order and completion to a project, for example. The joy that comes from from creating something beautiful out of something that wasn't. Of seeing potential in something that maybe other people see as a waste. We enjoy it when our work brings benefit to others. Whether you help someone with their income tax, you teach someone a new skill, you fix someone's car, you provide some kind of a service that will benefit others, we enjoy the result of that. But we also encounter Genesis 3 and the reality of sin causing resistance in our work, of thorns and thistles disrupting what could be. A deal falls through, a proposal gets rejected, a job loss happens, COVID happens, a financial crash in the market occurs, Corners get cut, dishonesty in the workplace, negative work environments, etc. So we have the design of work and we have the ruin of work. And so we're left with the question, is there hope for the redemption of work? The way that things could be. Let's go back to Genesis 3.14 because there's a really interesting section here that is key to understanding the rest of the Bible. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Remember, the snake represents evil and sin. And God is saying the offspring that will crush the snake's head that connects to the gospel. That's actually pointing to Jesus. But the serpent will strike his heel. So fast forward to the gospels, and and I love this about the Bible. You get the first few chapters of the Bible connected to the New Testament. It's so amazing how the grand narrative of the Bible actually fits together. So we go to the gospels and we realize that Jesus did come to crush and defeat power, the power of sin and evil, right? He did this by sacrificing himself on the cross 2,000 years ago, taking into himself, as it were, the venom of sin, the power of sin and evil, and death into himself. And through this act of sacrifice and love, God is not only interested in saving individual souls, he's in He's interested in redeeming all of his tov creation, right? And that includes our work. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, so this is because of redemption. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. As Christians, according to the Bible, we are already new creations, the Bible says. We have already been redeemed. And this should manifest itself in our personal devotional life, maybe in our relationships, but nowhere else. No, it should deeply affect and be manifested in our workplaces, right? If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. It doesn't just say, partially new or that only certain areas are, are being made new, but the totality of your being is being made new. But God isn't done with making things new yet, right? We know that. We know all too well how sin still affects our own lives, how brokenness and sin still affects other people, our relationships, how it affects our workplace and the world out there. We live in this in-between time where God's kingdom has already been inaugurated. It's already begun, but it's not fully here yet, right? His kingdom has not been fully consummated yet. It lies in the future. And so God's rule and kingdom is in a real way already present, transforming people in the present. And yet there is still sin and brokenness in the world. There is still thorns and thistles that distort our lives including our work. We live in a time when, uh, that Bible scholars call the, the already but not yet. But this leaves us with a future hope of everything being restored, how things will be. Now, Jeff is going through a series in Revelation, and I don't want to ruin his series here, but I will give you a little spoiler alert. Sorry, Jeff. In Revelation 21, that's where this hope gets fulfilled. 
And it doesn't end with Christians all floating away to spend eternity on some cloud playing a harp. That frankly sounds quite boring to me. No, it ends with heaven coming to bear reality here. New creation. It doesn't say God is going to make all new things. It says he will make all things new. But without pain and suffering and death, without the thorns and thistles caused by sin. And so there is a real future hope to the story of the Bible. So what? What's a Christian to do in the meantime if we do believe this, that God is making all things new and, and there is future for the hope, I guess we can just kick back in our lazy chairs, make some popcorn, make a margarita maybe, I don't know, enjoy the show, right? No, see, this is where our work actually matters. Remember, God made humans to be his co-workers. Right after Paul says, that those who are in Christ are a new creation, he follows it up with this in 2 Corinthians 5, 18, 21. I think I have a transition in there. AJ, you might just have to hit the down key or something. But it says that we are now ambassadors for Christ. We are urged to work together with God not to receive his grace in vain. Your work matters. And as new creations in Christ, representatives of Jesus in the world, we can begin to work in ways that brings hope to others. We can treat people at work and customers in a way that brings hope. We can work with such excellence at our jobs that it can actually show our boss and our colleagues potential. It can show them, hey, look at what could be. At the workplace, Christians are people through whom work, sorry, at the workplace, Christians are people through whom hope can come to the world. That's a quote by N.T. Wright. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says, therefore, therefore means it's referring to something before that verse, and the whole chapter, he has this long chapter that talks about the resurrection of Jesus and how that transforms our life right now. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, he says, therefore, lost my place here, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our work here, if it's done in Christ, it's not for nothing. It actually has eternal significance. And so you might think, well, maybe that's true for certain kinds of work, right? Like maybe if you're a pastor or a missionary, then you contribute to God's kingdom and, have, and your work has eternal value. But not, not my job. My job is just secular. I just work at a coffee shop or, or in an office or I'm a student or I work at a construction site. Like how does, how does my Monday to Friday work actually have anything to do with God's kingdom? And N.T. Wright a New Testament scholar, he addresses this very question with a really cool illustration that I want to share with you guys. So he's, he's British, so I don't know if you've ever been to England or Scotland, but there are these magnificent old buildings, right? These beautiful old castles and churches and these, these great artistic um, stone buildings. And so 
Imagine one of those buildings, and they're still out there today, and they require stonemasons to continue working on them to keep up um, the building. And so N.T. Wright says, imagine a brand new apprentice, brand new apprentice stonemason. He just got his red seal or whatever certification you get in England. He just got his certification. He's a brand new apprentice stonemason. And the master stonemason, the foreman or the boss, he assigns the apprentice a job. He says, okay, here's your slab of stone. I need you to chip away at it. Uh, maybe make a little groove here. Maybe cut a line here. And I need you to, to make it in this or that shape. Okay, that's your job. And so the apprentice works away at it. He works, works away at a slab of stone. But at some point, the apprentice gets a little discouraged and he wonders, what does chipping away at this little rock have anything to do with that magnificent building back there? I don't, I don't see the connection. And one day, the master stonemason, he's going to take the apprentice and say, come along, I want to show you something. And the master mason shows the apprentice this beautiful wall on the building. And then he points up and he says, see that stone right over there? That's yours. That's the work you did. Pretty neat, hey? And in a similar way, we may not see that our work what our work has to do with God's kingdom. But according to the Bible, if it's work done in Christ, if your work bears the marks of God's tove, right, of his love, of his character, then your work will not be in vain. Then God will use it for his kingdom. So what kind of work qualifies as work done in Christ or for God's kingdom? Well, Colossians 3, verse 23 and 24 says, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Whatever you do. All honest work can be glorifying to God, Colossians says. Whatever you do. Whether you're a student, stay-at-home mom, a farmer, mechanic, a city worker, a nurse, a teacher, business owner, whether you serve coffees as a barista, a grocery clerk, or a musician, it doesn't matter. Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. If you're a Christian, who do you work for? Jesus. It's a, it's a great Sunday school answer, right? But don't just gloss over that. Think about the implications of that. You... Yeah, you lend your time to whoever pays your paycheck. But your allegiance is ultimately to Jesus. And somehow we have bought into this idea that certain jobs are glorifying to God while others are just secular jobs. But that way of thinking about work and life is totally foreign to the story of the Bible. And it's not a holistic way for us as Christians to go about our work and our life. Some would argue that there is no kind of work that is more glorifying to God than another. Okay, you know, you get the picture. There, certainly there are lines of work, there are certain types of work that are contrary to God's good design, right? You can't be a God-honoring sweatshop owner or running a drug cartel or working for the porn industry. You, you get the idea. But the point here is no honest work is more glorifying to God than another type of honest work. A mom 
changing diapers and raising kids is no less God-honoring in her work than a doctor who's working for Doctors Without Borders in Africa. You can make and serve coffees as a barista and be working for Jesus. And sadly, there are pastors who are not working for Jesus. Martin Luther, um, he lived in a time when people thought that way. People in the Middle Ages, in the 1500s, they thought, well, your work can only be glorifying to God if you have churchy work. If you're a priest or a monk or whatever, then you're glorifying to God, but all the rest is just secular work to get by. And Martin Luther, the great reformer, he rejected that way of thinking. He's got a famous quote that says, a dairy maid can milk cows to the glory of God. I love that. So whatever it is that is your task to do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord because it's him you're serving. And if you're serving him with your work, it's not in vain. Okay, let's wrap it up. What's the meaning of work to summarize? Well, that depends on what story you tell yourself about work. The story of the Bible shows us through creation that work is a gift and that God meant to bring goodness through order, beauty, potential, and benefit for others. Because of the fall, our work's goals will be met with resistance, difficulties, frustrations. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're in the wrong job if you're experiencing real dark difficulties. I, for those who don't know me, I worked in all kinds of different areas of work before being a pastor. I, I get it. Work can be incredibly hard and work environments can be dark. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're in the wrong job. Maybe it does, but that's not necessarily an indicator. It just means that you're in the world that's affected by sin along with the rest of us and life is hard. (laughs) Redemption means that we are new creations and the way in which we carry ourselves at work reflecting God's goodness can bring hope to others even to the darkest work environments. Finally, restoration. Our work here, if it is done in Christ, is not in vain and it has eternal value as we trust and actively wait for God to fully bring his kingdom to rule in our world. So lastly, how can you you connect your faith with your work? How do you connect your Sunday life and your worship here with what you're going to be doing tomorrow through, I guess tomorrow's a day off, what you're going to be doing the rest of Monday to Fridays or Saturdays. How do you connect those dots? And of course, there's, there's the obvious ones that most of us jump to right away, right? You can begin to, to dedicate a portion of your earnings towards the church, towards a charity, towards the benefiting of others. And you can also learn to share your faith at work, hopefully through relationship, through, through being sincere, through listening, But sometimes our imagination stops there. So what are some other ways that your work can bring glory to God? There's there's all kinds of ways, but I just want to share a few here to get you started. The first is, think about God's work of bringing tov out of tohu vavohu, of goodness out of chaos. And then ask God to help you participate in that model in your own work. Look at order. Where do you see disorder or wild and wasteland 
in your work and how can you contribute to bringing order to that? Potential and beauty. This requires imagination. I don't have a a prescription for each of your jobs here. It's something you'll have to think and pray about. But where does your work or your work world see trash or waste or a waste of time? But as Christians, you might be invited to see beauty and potential. Benefit. How can your work not only benefit you, right? Not only take, take home the paycheck for the weekend, but how can your work actually benefit others? I heard um, Tim Mackey, he shares, I mentioned baristas here a few times. Um, I used to work as one while I was going through college. And he said he knew of a barista who serves coffee for a living, but one day a week or two days a week, she commits to praying for every single person that she serves coffee to. That's a huge ministry. That is amazing. If you're a car salesperson, what would it look like to defeat the stereotype? What would it look like if as a salesperson, you actually cared about getting that person the right car for them, something that they can afford that will meet their needs and not just try and make a quick sale and force them into to buying something? If you're a doctor or you work in the medical field in some in some way, rather than just rushing through an appointment and printing a quick prescription, what if you actually listened to your patient, made eye contact, and had compassion on them? If you run a business, what if you ran your business in a way that doesn't just benefit you, it's not just about making a buck for you, but your goal is actually to create jobs where people can thrive in? Number two, work hard and with excellence. Dorothy Sayers, um, a Christian woman who, who was a poet and a writer, she says this, she said, the only Christian work is good work well done. Number three, rest. Keep the fourth commandment and take a day to rest. Maybe you can't rest every Sunday because of your work. Find a day to rest because we need rest so that we can actually love God and love our neighbors, right? If I don't rest, I am a miserable person to be around. We need rest. And number four, pray the Lord's Prayer regularly in your work life. It calibrates our hearts as we go into our workday, surrendering our will, our work, our goals, and say, God, I want your kingdom and your will to be done today in whatever I do. Amen. Let's pray.